1: A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Hi, crime fans, and welcome to another episode of A Million Other Choices. As always, I'm your host, Kim. I'm only a few episodes into my podcast, but I already have a correction that I have to do. Jessica Newman case, I referred to uh, Quesnel, BC, and it's actually pronounced Quinnell BC. So I have to apologize to anyone that uh, is from that area or knows that area. Somebody was kind enough to point that out to me that I uh, mispronounced that, so can't say that's not going to happen again. A lot of places that I'm probably going to mispronounce and names that are going to be difficult pr- to pronounce as well, so certainly if I do mispronounce something, let me know and I will correct it on the next episode. This week I wanted to bring you the Dalhousie murder-suicide. If you live in Calgary, you likely remember that story. Joshua Lull was an architect living in the Dalhousie area of Calgary and he called in sick one day to work and murdered his wife and kids and the downstairs tenant with an axe, leaving his baby daughter as the only survivor. But because it's a murder-suicide, there's there was no charges laid so there, nothing went through the court system. And in order for me to write about a story and make a 30-minute podcast, I either have to be able to read enough details from witnesses or or friends or have the details from the court proceedings. Otherwise, if it doesn't go through the court system, it's considered private information. It's part of a police investigation and it isn't for the public. And I'm certainly not the type to go knocking on people's doors, dredging up the past for them. So I wouldn't have had much to go on. And the fact that it's local, as usual, there's maybe a couple of articles about it in the paper at the time. And there's really just not much else to go on. So while looking up that story, I came across this one that I'm doing today instead, but the LOLs fit story really still bothers me. So what I might do at some point is write like a blog post about it on my website at a millionotherchoices.com rather than do a full podcast on it, or maybe my sleuthing skills will improve and I'll be able to hunt down enough information to make a full episode on it. There is a lot in that case regarding mental health issues. So I think it's definitely a very interesting case. So I've put it on the back burner for now, but it might crop up later for you. In the meantime, unfortunately, it's not like I'm lacking for cases, even the local ones. So I've decided to do this case today instead. This is the Bonaventure Axe Murders of Calgary. Ian Gordon, a math and computer tutor, and Elaine McCorkwydale, an OR nurse, were married in 1981 in Mississauga, Ontario, and they were married for 11 years and had two children together, Kayla and Laney. Shortly after they got married, they settled in Calgary in the area of Lake Bonavista, which is a very affluent area of town in the southwest. In 1992, they began divorce proceedings. The divorce records show that the breakup of their marriage was, in, was due to infidelity on Ian's part, and some sources say it was with the children's nanny, but I can't confirm that. The divorce was finalized in the summer of 1996, but things remained very amicable between the two of them, and they divided custody 50-50. Ian decided to stay in the Bonavesta area and bought himself a house at 13236 Bonaventure Drive. Now this area of Bonaventure Drive, Bonaventure Drive is a very long road and it encompasses a number of different communities. But on this particular part of Bonaventure Drive is in the community of Lake Bonavista. And in 2005, the median income was about $100,000 a year. So Ian and Elaine had been doing pretty well financially. Lake Bonavista was built around 1967 and it was the first neighbourhood in Calgary to surround a man-made lake. There's quite a number of other neighborhoods that do that now, but at that time it was the only one. So in addition to fairly large houses with large yards, residents also have access to swimming and boating and skating in the winter. It's also really close to Fish Creek Park, which is a nature-preserved area with lots of trails and wooded areas. Houses in this area now go for about 637000 and up. Housing prices in Calgary vary quite a bit, depending on the area, but the average today is 509000 It's a very lovely part of town. It's not mansions, but really nice, desirable area. Nice houses, nice yards, um, well-defined with tr- quite large trees, lots of shopping around there. And by remaining close to his ex-wife's house, he could also remain close to his daughters, and their schooling wouldn't be interrupted with the joint custody agreement. So in 1995, a now single Ian worked at the Mount Royal College in the transition vocation program. He worked as a part-time sessional instructor who introduced computers to adults with special needs. He was held in really high regard and all the students really liked him and he always got strong student evaluations. Ian remained very close with his daughters. He enrolled them in many extracurricular activities, pottery, French, piano. He also attended Lainey's therapy sessions. She had a mild uh, cerebral palsy that mostly affected her left hand, so she would have been doing occupational therapy for that, and he was the one that mostly took her to those sessions. Ian opened a storefront math tutoring service in the Lake Bonavista Mall, which is only like a block from his house, so you, you literally you could walk across the street pretty much from there. It's got a gas station in there and some restaurants and there's now a sylvan learning center there which might have actually been where his tutoring office was other tenants in the mall remember him as a nice guy pleasant really easy to get along with he would often stop into the bakery for a muffin and to have a chat he came across as well educated very polite he even helped build a new playground and develop a computer system at one of the local schools in the community Gordon graduated from the University of Waterloo in 1978 with a degree in math and advertised his services through the Bonavista Bugle, which was the community newsletter. He lived as a single dad devoted to his girls, and then in 1996 he met Linda, or Lynn to her friends, Chris. Now I hope I'm pronouncing that one correctly, it's spelled K-R-E-I-S. Lynn was a graduate of Mount Royal College. Now, Mount Royal College is now a university, but at that time it was a college, in the Human Resources program. She was working as a career counselor, and she had just ended her 14-year marriage with Harry Chris, but the two had remained very friendly. And She had started singing lessons, she was volunteering at the YWCA, and was awaiting her first assignment as a trained volunteer with AIDS Calgary. Harry and Lynn continued to see each other on a regular basis, and they shared custody of their dog, Sasha. So one day she stopped by to pick up Sasha and took her for a walk through Cellfund dog Park. It's an open-leash area that you can take your dog to in that area of town. She met Ian Gordon, who was walking his own dog. The two quickly began a relationship, and Lynn adored Laney and Kayla. She just really easily fell into a role as stepmom for them. The pair led an active life full of sports and adventures. Ian had a personalized license plate that said math for you. He often helped out kids at Kayla's school with computers computers. His neighbors said that he loved to solve complicated math problems, and had lots of books of riddle, math riddles in his house. He had a dry wit, he was quite funny, a lot of people said, and he was very sharp. Both Laney and Kayla were very affectionate girls, they liked to give big hugs to their family members and their friends, and Laney was an artistic girl who liked to draw, so the windows of their Bonaventure house were often adorned with her artwork. Which was mostly depictions of her family with i love you daddy written on top and she would draw the pictures and give them as gifts and ian would display them in the windows for the neighbors to see in the winter of 1998 kayla gordon was a grade 9 student at nickel junior high and laney was a student at sam livingston elementary in grade four Elaine dropped Kayla and Laney off for their regular visit with Ian on Tuesday, February 3rd, 1998. There was no odd feeling, nothing out of place, no qualms about it was just a regular drop-off for them, uh, for him to start his week, I think they would have exchanged weeks with the girls. Sometime during that day, while the girls were at school, a fight between Lynn and Ian started. We're never gonna know what it was over. And that's part of the problem with a lot of these cases, whether they're local or not, is it's you just never know what is going through a person's mind and what's happening at the time because either in cases like this, the witnesses are gone and the perpetrator just never really says anything. Or in a lot of these cases, uh, the perpetrator kills himself, so we just never even know any details. And that's part of the problem with the uh, Joshua Lull case, is that we just there's just not enough information. But whatever the fight was about, Lynn was mad enough that she had started packing a bag. Like she was done, she's leaving. And Ian, whether it was in panic or in rage, again, we're just never going to know, he goes to the garage and grabs an axe. And as she's packing... He hits her in the back of the head in the master bedroom of their two-story home. He then calmly covers her body and the pool of blood that she's laying in with a blanket. He shuts the bedroom door. And so this would have been about 1.30 in the afternoon. At around three that afternoon, he goes and picks the kids up from their schools. First, he gets Kayla from her junior high and then Laney from her elementary school. He brings them back home and lets the two girls settle into their normal after-school routine. He prepares the girls a snack, all the while the body of their 41-year-old stepmother is upstairs in the bedroom that Ian and Lynn shared. Kayla starts her homework on the dining room table, and Lainey takes her snack with her and goes up to her own room, lays on her bed, and starts to draw some pictures. Ian comes behind Kayla and attacks her with the same axe he used to kill Lynn. Autopsy results would show defensive wounds. So in Kayla's last moments, she knew who was attacking her and tried in vain to ward off the blows. He then goes into Lainey's bedroom and swings the axe at the unsuspecting Lainey hitting her in the skull. At this point, it's about 4 p.m., in the early morning hours of February 4th, around 3 a.m., he calls 911 and says that he has slit his wrists, wanting to die, but that he's kind of changed his mind and he'd like some help. On this same call, he tells the 911 operator that he ambushed Lynn with an axe in their home on that night because she was ending their relationship. Only Ian Gordon knows what he spent those hours with the bloody bodies of his wife and two children doing. There was a suicide note read into court, but the only line from it that I could find read, quote, I have suffered and must stop it. Sergeant Dean Shaw and Nick Kiska investigated the grisly scene. They find Lynn in a pool of blood covered by the blanket in the second floor master bedroom an opened and partially filled suitcase on the bed. There's blood spatter covering the walls in the dining room where Kayla is laying, crumpled in a fetal position on the floor. And in one of the smaller upstairs bedrooms is nine-year-old Lainey, a bowl of chips and a glass of pop sitting next to her still body and the ax laying on the floor half under the bed. The girls were found in their school clothes rather than pajamas, and the location of their bodies suggested the murders happened during the late afternoon and not in the early morning hours prior to Ian's call to 911. Dean Shaw and Nick Kiska still can't drive past the house on Bonaventure and will take an alternate route whenever they can. The bodies of children are always the hardest to deal with and never leave them. The memories of their bodies and the drawings that Laney had around the house are just still too fresh even 20 years later. I think it's easy to dismiss them as tough homicide cops, they see this stuff every day, but they're often fathers and mothers themselves and still human, so we should have gratitude for the work that they're able to do, particularly in these kinds of cases. Ian Gordon was arrested at the scene and taken to the Rocky View Hospital to be treated for cuts to his wrist before being remanded to custody at the Calgary Remand Centre. He was charged with three counts of first-degree murder. There are conflicting reports as to the cuts on his wrist and how serious they were. Kenneth Hashman was the director at the Peter Lougheed Centre for Forensic Psychiatry at the time and he said in court that he would have died without medical treatment. But Gordon was also fighting the 30-day psychiatric assessment that they were trying to get for him. Hashman also admitted that he had only briefly interviewed him before court that morning. So in the end, he was sent for a psychiatric assessment before he entered his plea. After the 30-day psychiatric stay and examination, he was found fit to stand trial. It doesn't mean anything wasn't wrong with him. It just means that he was able to understand the court process and and he sort of knew what day it was and where he was and those kinds of things. It it doesn't mean he didn't have any mental issues. It just means that he was able to go through a trial process. On September 22, 1998, while America was awaiting the verdict in the Clinton impeachment trial, Ian Gordon entered a guilty plea to second-degree murder Even though the facts of the case read into evidence showed that the murders took place over a two and a half hour period, prosecutor Harold Hagelin dropped the first degree because there was insufficient evidence of planning and deliberation. It also saved the family going through the brutality of a drawn out trial. He was sentenced to 25 years with no eligibility for parole for 23 years. Some families were outraged but Elaine, Kayla and Laney's mom, was just relieved to have the sentencing over with. Ian Gordon was transferred from Calgary Remand to the Kingston and Maximum Security Prison. But less than two years into his sentence, and I believe it was only like a little over a year, like only about maybe 12 or 13 months later, Elaine got word from Corrections Canada that he had transferred to the Bath Institution, which is located just east of the city of Bath, Ontario, approximately 25 kilometers west of Kingston. It is located on a Federal Reserve property and the property is shared with Millhaven Institution. Bath Institution is a standalone, or at that time, was a standalone minimum security facility based on an open campus design model. It has since been changed to a medium security, but at the time it was minimum. Elaine was disturbed that a violent offender like Gordon, who was serving a life sentence for three murders, had been moved from maximum security, which is what she considered hard time, to this minimum security prison. It so offended her that she and Eve Peck, whose daughter Jennifer was stabbed 19 times by her ex-boyfriend Robert Appleton in August of 1998, they traveled to Kingston to see the Bath Institution, which overlooks Lake Ontario. Elaine said the visit was like reliving her daughter's funerals, and for Eve, it was like returning to the horrors of court. The pair just did not expect the killers to have access to billiard tables and barbecues. Amid the white pines of Ontario's cottage country, the facility features gymnasiums, crafts and woodworking shops, Eve was shaken by the fact that Appleton was free to make whatever he wanted for supper with knives, much like the ones he used to stab her daughter. They launched a media campaign to ensure that people convicted of first and second degree murder serve a minimum of their first two years in maximum security institutions. Their campaign worked and Gordon was immediately transferred back to Kingston. But at some point before June of 2008, they transferred him to Warkworth in Campbellford, Ontario. Warkworth is a standalone medium security facility based on a structured campus design model. So it has direct cell observation ranges, but only two days before a family wedding, she was looking forward to celebrating in, a, in June of 2018. She learned that Gordon had once again been transferred back to Bath with its lakeside barbecue pits, communal kitchens, private rooms, and house-like living. Elaine said, quote, I just don't understand what a person has to do in this country to get hard time. I mean, Ian Gordon is a triple murderer. He slaughtered his own children and his common-law wife with an axe, and he gets to have barbecues by Lake Ontario and a key to lock his own bedroom door. She continues and says, In retrospect, we realize now it was just a public relations band-aid. He's 13 years away from even being eligible to book be- to apply for parole and yet by sending him back to bath they're giving him way too much freedom and comfort for a triple murderer to ever have never mind so soon it minimizes the value of the girls lives and how important their lives were to all of us and somehow it strikes me that their dignity and worth is considered of zero value to our justice system and you know upon reading what elaine was saying about this it really got me thinking I never really thought about it in the case in our case with uh, Dustin, who's the person that murdered my niece. We've all registered with Corrections Canada, and we're really expecting to hear nothing until his 25 years are up. And at that time, I'm probably, or at least hopefully, going to be too old to really care. But I never considered that he could be transferred to a cushy minimum security place if he behaves himself. So I think Elaine's right. It should be hard time for murder. The house at 13236 Bonaventure Drive is listed as a stigmatized property on House Creep, but Tim and I did another drive-by to go look at it because I'm creepy like that and I make him do things like that for me. We are pretty positive that at some point the city was petitioned to change the address. I won't tell you what we think the address is now for their privacy, but it's right on a corner and based on the numbering, I think they were able to change it to the side street numbering, even though it's right on Bonaventure drive. It's a lovely two story house and it's actually currently for sale. So as soon as I saw the for sale sign when I got home, I Googled the listing and by the looks of it, it's been completely redone top to bottom. They're asking currently 1.2 million for it. It's five bedroom, three and a half bath, about 2200 square foot house on an 8,100 square foot lot. I'm sure it doesn't look anything like it did in 1998, but even back before they did the redo, it was probably a pretty nice house. Now I looked it up and in Alberta, you do not have to disclose of a house if a murder happened in a house, so it's probably changed hands a few times since the murders. I'm somewhat tempted to contact the realtor for a tour, but that seems a bit morbid, even for me. Also, I don't think I look like somebody who could afford a 1.2 million dollar house, so I think I would be—I uh, think I'd be found out pretty quick. Now, I don't actually remember this story, so I had to do all the research from scratch. So my sources today actually are a deep dive into the archives of the newspapers back then through the Calgary Public Library, and the newspapers I looked at were the Calgary Herald and the Calgary Sun. I probably don't remember the case because this happened in February of 1998 and Cecilia was born in March of 1998, so I would have been like enormously and irritatingly pregnant at the time and would have been avoiding anything that wasn't just sunshine and rainbows. I think it's definitely an interesting case for sure and no motive has ever been found for it. Ian Gordon has never spoken about it at all other than his wife leaving him, but I don't know. Why he killed his two kids is a complete mystery. I assume it was supposed to be a murder suicide, but he lost his nerve. So I guess death didn't look as good of a good of an option for himself after seeing it displayed in front of him. It was only good enough for his wife and kids. So that was the case of Lynn Chris, Kayla Gordon, and Laney Gordon. Please join me next week for yet another fascinating case. If you enjoy my podcast, please spread the word. And as always, thanks for listening, everyone.